You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Welcome, everyone, to episode 58 of the MXU podcast. <laughs> I am your co host, Lee, and this is Jeff and Daniel. The great and powerful. My goodness. I, I can't tell if you're trying to like announce the next UFC bout or if you're just being ridiculous right now, but I, I think I like it. I think it's a little bit of both. Are you guys sponsored by ButcherBox now? Uh, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> it's <a> proper <laughs> 12 Irish whiskey. Yeah, if you're, if you're a Rogan fan, you'll, you'll get that. So. Yeah, that's true. I, I'd take a sponsorship from Traeger. How about that? There you go. Yeah, yeah. So I'd take a sponsorship from any of those things, actually. Speaking of Traegers, we're going to Elevation in uh, a week and a half. Nice. Shoot some videos. And one of the nights we're going to Zach's house for a barbecue. Yes. And guess what I ordered yesterday and shipped to his house? Snake River Farms brisket. Snake River Farms Wagyu fillets. Oh, dude, I have those. They are Are they amazing. good? So uh, we, were, we went camping in january or like over christmas we were camping back in alabama visiting friends and by camping i don't mean it was a tent uh for th- for those that don't know we've got an rv that that's kind of how my family and i vacation we had bought uh all of our high-end customers we sent snake river farms gift baskets for christmas so of yeah. course i send myself one too you know right. a, a chance to have uh high quality meat as a tax deduction because you know we have right. <laughs> yeah um, I didn't get one. Uh, exactly. <laughs> we, we need to talk about that. So uh, p- part of mine was Wagyu fillets. So we're out camping, and I want to cook these one night, and I didn't have a Traeger. Well, I had my little tiny uh, yeah, Traeger with tailgater. me. But it, I didn't want to reverse sear them or anything. I wanted to do them right because uh, yeah. I'm not a big fan of the reverse sear. And I have like a griddle thing with me, but it was so cold and windy, it couldn't get up, uh, it up to temp. So I got a campfire going with a cast iron skillet in it. And I cooked these Snake River Farms fillets yes. over a campfire in a cast iron skillet. Bro, the best steak I have ever had in my life. So I they, believe that's you. Amazing. Yeah, they send a rub you. with them. I highly suggest their rub. It's great. Ah. It's a, it's a uh, what is it? Jameson Salt, I think it's the n- company. Okay. Uh, there's like a, a high end, like. Uh, it's uh, probably just salt, pepper, and garlic. It is, but it's like, it tasted better than that. There's something about that salt, pepper, and garlic that was yeah amazing. Their the ingredients, or, their ratios, and so I highly suggest buying those and then going and cooking by a lake over a campfire, and you'll you'll have the best steak of your life. Well, we're gonna do them in Zach's backyard and play darts in his garage. So close enough. Yeah, I'm jealous. Yeah, we're we're excited about that. We're gonna have a ton of videos to share on the MXU Now site about video. So everything from gear specs and how stuff works to 101 type volunteer training stuff all the way to how to train camera ops and how to cut a show and what they're thinking about as directors and all this kind of stuff so we're we're thrilled it's going to be fun that sounds awesome. and speaking of rvs guess what i got a uh contract for that we signed this week i'm totally lost an rv i don't a tour bus for what? <laughs> for for the next series of MXU live events that we're going to announce soon that I kind of just did. What? <laughs> yeah. So so uh, I've always said no one can get me back in a bus bunk. We uh we, we may have just done it. Well, 45 foot Prevost XL2. 
All right. Coming up. More info on that coming soon. Um, and there's a bunk with Daniel's name on it. We'll just say that. I've never slept there as is. good as I do on a Prevo, so that might be mm. nice. So we're we're getting pretty close to making an official announcement, so keep your ears peeled. Nice. But it's going to be fun. Sponsored by Traeger. Not really. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that. Like, if we just say it's sponsored by Traeger, do you think they'll send us something? Uh, we just, you just need everyone to, like, send the podcast links to Traeger so that until they start listening to them and go, who are these guys? How do we sponsor right. them? Yeah, right, totally. Of, Make th- make them I believe make them believe they're sponsoring you even before they are. So it just kind of happens. But even even without a sponsor, do not for a second think that there won't be tailgating and triggering in every church parking lot where we end oh. up doing these events. Oh, every one of them. We're going to have a trigger and a big green egg. I've already decided. Yeah, you it's, know it's non negotiable. We have a spare Timberline eight fifty. We keep here at the warehouse. Do you? Yeah, I need to make a road case for it, and it'll be part of the MXU tour. That, that's a big one, Timberline 850. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this is the one, oh man, I probably don't want to go down this rabbit hole. I had a problem with my first one. Yeah. And so they sent me a replacement and I was supposed to send back the other one. I didn't do it. So, <laughs> so hopefully they don't listen to this hopefully podcast. They don't listen. Yeah. Uh, I have a feeling I probably shouldn't connect it to Wi Fi or it'll just like blow up. But uh, yeah, still have, still have a backup. I think being a part of the truck pack for the MXU tour is the perfect place for that trigger to find a home. Awesome. Done. So Daniel, what have you been up to lately? Man, you know, besides dealing with snow and COVID, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, the first half of the, the first part of the year in this business always seems to be the same, no matter, uh, what part of the business you're in. It's spent, you know, there's usually a, a panic of like two or three weeks at the beginning of the year before the the shows or, or tours or whatever start locking in where you're going, Oh no, are we going to have to lay people off this year? And then, uh, February rolls around and the floodgates open. And, uh, that's definitely been what's going on for us. We've, you know, we are, it's, it's funny. I've, people have heard me say before, I don't ever want to, uh, be a part of an, and, uh, I don't want to ever be an integrator. I don't ever want to own an integration company, which, uh, and now that's a lot of what we do. So, um, the, the floodgates there have kind of opened up for us a lot and we are, uh, We've been spending about the past three or four weeks signing new contracts on installs for this year uh, to the point of we're about to have to go into a, a, hire, a hiring frenzy. So we've, we've got all our installs coming up. We've got, uh, you know, we're heavily involved with Transformation Church and all the the designs and stuff that go on there. So they've got a, they've kept their auditorium uh, and arena closed down uh, during COVID. You know, they've only been doing online. So Later on in the spring, they'll be opening that back up for for attendance, and uh, so we're trying to get a, a big design together for that. And uh, yeah, just uh, trying to get a grip on the other other handful of shows that are finally starting to pop pop up after this year of, of hardly any, and uh, see how we're going to ride the big wave of twenty twenty one. Okay, cool. so a lot of integrators are hiring right now. They are, and we usually don't promote like job opportunities, you know, whether that's on our Slack channel for teams members or our Facebook group, anything like that. But I felt like this year, the last year has been so crazy and there's been so many people without jobs mm-hmm. that the last like couple of weeks we've been posting a lot. And at first, you know, Jeff and I would text each other like, Hey, how do you feel about this? And we're kind of indifferent to it. But at the same time, I've been thinking more about it and it's like, well, I mean, there are people out there that need jobs. Yeah. And there's people out there at churches that have had their salaries cut. You know, there's just lots of circumstances where I felt like 
it's actually okay. So Amplio in Chicago, they're hiring. Summit, they're hiring. Uh, Marcus at Skylark, he's hiring. Mm-hmm. He needs project manager. Like they all need project managers. Yeah. Wave is hiring. Uh, Nicholas at IPS, he sent me a message like, hey, oh, we're yeah. looking for these guys too. There's tons of churches looking for opportunities also. Yeah. But yeah. I, uh, I, what I didn't do was post the job opportunities in our in our Slack channel because those are all just church tech guys and their churches are paying for their accounts and I thought it's <laughs> probably not good to have uh, advertised to you know get someone to leave their church on that. Yeah, the one thing we don't want to do is have churches poaching guys from each other. That's yeah. not what this is about. This is about our trusted partners and their needs. And for people who are looking, for, I mean, it could be an industry guy who's been mm-hmm. just without work for a long time and needs help, or you know, somebody else who is is looking for something new. There are a ton of really good opportunities out there. So we just want to help kind of promote the needs and see if we can connect people. Yeah, and I, I think even there's a time when you know a lot of us are even just called to working at a church for a season. Uh, I know that was the case with me. I mean, I had toured for ten years before I ever ended up at a church. And that time I spent full, working full-time at a church is some of the most valuable years of my career, but it also came to an end. And sometimes people are just looking for what the next thing is. Um, so yeah, I'll, you know, it's funny. I hadn't even thought about us announcing it publicly in any way because so many of our, our hires are so relationship-based. You know, we are yeah. a, a close-knit team and we're going to keep it that way. But uh, yeah, we are obviously, uh, as, well, as, as you said, Lee, there are so many people looking for, for new hires at the moment. Obviously, my favorite one is us because, you know, Hey, it's us. Uh, but yeah, we, we're looking for, you know, what I like about what we get to do is we do have the integration side of things, but we still also get to go out and do shows and operate shows and, you know, do, do concerts and, and touring and that aspect of it. And we've got the, the rental division to the company. So, uh, we, we get to kind of have our, our feet in a few more places. So we're looking for a lot of the guys that maybe have a, a knack for the integration side and want to be involved with it some, um, but also still want to have the ability to, you know, be the guys behind the gear on occasion, be the guys out, out operating the show. So, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not too uh, shameless to give us a plug there. If you're, if you're one of those guys and you either want to be an actual integrator in there, pulling the wires and getting it done, or we're looking for a couple designers. And, uh, I think we've got a, a solid project manager that's, uh, you know, a couple steps away from officially joining the team, but we can always use more. So yeah, give me a shout. Yeah, and you know this brings up another topic that I'm very passionate about, and it's you know church technical staff and salary mm-hmm. and stage of life and what types of people churches hire. Like for the longest time, I wanted churches to pay more so that a church tech director could be a career long opportunity. Mm-hmm. Because for the average church, like the reality is, it's just not. Yeah, it's right. It's not ever going to be, and I'm talking the average church, okay? Which is, you know, me, what do we call a medium sized church? Like one technical person on staff, maybe two. Mm-hmm. It's probably not the place where you can raise a family, send kids to college, retire. It, it just isn't. So I'm more comfortable now as uh, guys and gals get into their late 20s and early 30s, and they start starting families. It used to freaking grind my gears when I would see people leave and go work for integrators and become project managers. But, I mean, you've been working at a church for seven years and you're making $35,000 a year and an integrator offers you a job, potentially 
maybe almost doubling that. It's like, man, that's really hard to say no, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's probably best for your family, and you can still go volunteer at your church if you stay in your city. You find another church to serve at. It doesn't necessarily mean you're walking away from church. You're going and you're working for for for-profit companies that their mission and goal is to still help the local church. That's it. That's the key to me. Like That's the part that I've seen change that— you know, some of the integrators I saw growing up were just big companies that weren't necessarily focused just on the church world. They were audio video companies that might be doing a casino one day and a church the next. And, you know, with companies like Skylark and Summit and Amplio, um, and I don't, J- Jeff, I don't know Wave as, as good as you do, but I believe these guys are probably the same way. And I, I know we're very much this way. Most of the people in those companies come from churches to begin with. Right. Like you said, right. Jeff, we have, or, you know, Lee, have that passion for it. And, you know, we are as interested in elevating those church tech teams as, as they are. You know, part of our mission when we go to a project is not just installing the gear and walking away. We want to make sure we've left that team better than we found it, you know, and, and poured some, some knowledge into them. So some of these guys who have spent maybe, you know, 10 years in a church and are at that point in life where they do need to, uh, you know, make a change, possibly make more money, step into something else, you know, that... Th- they may not have the opportunity to not just pour into that one church, but pour into a lot of churches with the history and understanding yeah. they have of working, you know, from the inside. Yeah. And those, and people with that heart and mindset are the people that we have as partners to begin with. So, mm-hmm. you know, any of our trusted partners who are looking for people all have that heart behind it. So, um, well, I think we're going to keep doing it. I mean, as, as we hear of great opportunities, I think, it's part of our responsibility to let people know that that stuff is out there. So, and uh, you know, we posted about a church that was looking for yeah. someone. There's a great church in Montana in Billings called Faith Chapel. Um, one of their technical staff retired, and they're looking to refill that spot. Great church, great worship leader. Like everything about this place, I'm like, if I was at a different stage of life and was ready to move to Montana and retire. I'd probably go take this job. <laughs> so, yeah, the problem for me is if I were to move to Montana, it would not be to work, it'd be to fish and <laughs> yeah. enjoy the outdoors. So, I would not be a good fit, but So, here's what we're not going to do though. We're not going to post everything because what right. I don't want to do is post about a church opening that I don't know that church. Yeah. So, I I'm just going to be unfair and we can't do this for everyone, but the companies and the churches that we do know and we we think are great healthy uh churches or companies we'll probably start blasting that from the rooftops. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So let me run down the list again. So for people listening, Daniel, you're hiring. How can people get a hold of you? Uh, DCProLVA.com. Um, info at DanielCanell.com. Info at DCProLVA.com. Um, you can hit me on any of the socials at Daniel Cannell. Uh, it's usually mine. Okay. And then... Um, Skylark in Oklahoma City is hiring. They're skylarkav.com. Uh, Wave is hiring. Jeff, what's Wave's website? Wave.us. All right. And um, amplio.systems.com. They are hiring. Um, I'm making sure I've got these websites right. Summitintegrated.com. That's Summit in Denver, Boulder, Colorado. They are hiring. And IPS Nashville. Let me. F- I think they're IPS.live. Yes, IPS.live. They are hiring. Who do we forget? I got two major church client of ours that desperately need multiple positions on their staff, but I'm, I'm not going to name them because I'm not sure if yeah. they're publicly ready for it. But uh, One of them doesn't want themselves named yet. Right. So I would definitely say, you know, 
contact me though if that's you're looking to stay at a church uh, in the church world or get into it in a full time job. And I, I definitely know some people that are hiring. I'm happy to make some connections. And um, Faith Chapel in Billings and Christ Community in St. Charles, Illinois. Caleb is looking for an audio director. It's in the uh, west suburbs of Chicago, like not too close to feel like you're in downtown Chicago, but close enough to that you can still claim you live in Chicago. <laughs> Isn't that most of Chicago, really? That's kind of Chicago true. land area. It's like they say Chicago, but they're really like yeah. 55 minutes away, you know? Yeah. They're not in Cook County. They're outside of it, but um, great church there. So that's Christ Community in St. Charles. Nice. Well, we didn't plan to do that at all. That was just yeah, on the no, fly there. That was totally random. But I like it because we want to help churches find good people and vice versa and to help our integrator partners find great people who care about the church too. So I still I want churches to pay better, though. I haven't given up that fight. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. I don't think it'll ever, with what you said, Lee, I don't think it'll ever be, you know, uh, industry standard for outside of the church market. But there are, every now and then I'll stumble across a salary. Like I'll even say, I took a 50% pay cut to go work at a church, and it was the best decision I've ever made in my life, bar none. Yes. Huh. Um, would do it over again in a heartbeat if I felt like it was something I needed to do. So there's definitely an advantage to that. And But there is also, sometimes I'll hear, hear of the salaries, and I'm like, that's just, you can get an 18-year-old kid that's still living with his parents is what you can, what you know, who can live off of that salary. Uh, so there, there's definitely a middle ground somewhere. Daniel, I would say that they that's exactly what they should do. Yeah. Yeah. And like, no, you're you're not going to find a seasoned pro that's been mixing for 12 years to come do, do this job. You should go find a musician in the youth group that is right. maybe in community college and have him be your front of house guy or your tech director and just train him up and just suffer through it for a few months and they'll catch on quick. Yeah, but even like the 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 one I'm approached with a lot is like you know the way that the use of lighting as a as a tool for communication has grown so much in the past five to ten years in churches. I'll get people coming to me wanting an A level LD, and I'll say, "Yeah, what's your budget? Oh, we're planning on paying thirty eight thousand a year." Going, okay, well that's not going to happen because out anywhere else in the world they can make three or four times that, and they're just right. I mean, who's going to do it? So there is definitely some middle ground. Of I agree, a lot of times I think people are shooting you know, for beyond what they need, find the person that has the heart for your church and your ministry first and has an inclination towards the tech world and then get them the training they need and pay them that small amount. And, you know, until they, you know, get to the point of life where they, they need to move on to something else. Yeah, paying a 19 year old 15 to $20 an hour is killer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's better than Home Depot, but, and it's way better than Starbucks. And a 32-year-old out with a family? No. Right. right. You can't expect a 35-year-old person with three kids to be able to do that. It's just not feasible. Yeah. No. Good. Well, I'm glad we're I'm glad <laughs> we're doing that. That's good. Yeah. Daniel, why don't you tell us about our special guest today? Yeah. Um, so his name is Scott Moore, um, which to me he's probably going to be the the most well-known uh lighting designer that no one none of our listeners have ever heard of. Um, Scott Moore was a mentor to me. Uh, he was a mentor to, to Tony Franson, who was on the podcast, um, you know, a few weeks ago. Um, I started working with Scott first when I was well, actually, I think the first time I probably met him, I was 16 years old, maybe 17. And the lighting company I grew up working for 
uh, I was helping, you know, prep tours that, that Scott had designed and was, was taking out. And then eventually ended up touring with Scott in various capacities. And in fact, when I left working full-time at Church on the Move uh, six years ago, the only person from my pre- previous touring life that I contacted to say, hey, I'm out doing shows again, uh, was Scott. Uh, because to me, it is, uh, you know, I've always found it amazing that uh, I got paid to work with him because the lessons I got out of it, the the development, the personal development I got out of it, uh, to me was almost something I should be paying for. You know, I, I want to be careful because I could probably sit here and, and gush like a teen, little teenage girl because of the the impact Scott had on my life. You know, I'd say the the only person that Scott would be second to as far as impact on me personally and through my career uh, would be Andrew. And Scott introduced me to Andrew. Um, you know, Scott's the reason I ended up with Third Day, which is where I met uh, Andrew because. Uh, Scott was their designer before I was their designer, and he sent me out to uh, to operate one of the tours for them, and that that started my relationship with Andrew and with Third Day, and ultimately started uh, you know me on the path to kind of becoming a designer in my own right. Um, you know, so many of the things I've taught through MXU or through Seeds at Church on the Move, or or even just in conversations with people in the in our world, um, the the foundational elements are things that I got from Scott. Um, so that, you know, the important thing, the important takeaway in all this for me is, um, I would not be the designer, the person, uh, the company owner, the leader I am today, if I hadn't had that, that influence from Scott in my life as a mentor. So what I'd like to say is, you know, some of you, I think will get some out of this podcast. Some may not, but the point everyone can get, um, a, if you're a young guy in production, um, don't look for the coolest gear to work with. Don't look for the biggest show to look, work with. Look for the the people to work with that are going to make a huge impact on your life. I had an opportunity in my late teens to go out and do bigger shows than I was doing with Scott, um, to do more well-known artists. But I had gotten to work with him just enough to see the person he was and the leader he was. And I knew that if I you know spent my time with him, he could really help sharpen me uh, into, into something great. And, uh, you know, I won't, I don't know if he made sharpen me into something great, but he definitely had a you know a huge impact on my development. And the, I'd say the only thing I possibly regret in all that is uh, in my eagerness to get out of my own, as a lot of young people do, I think I stepped out from underneath his wing too early. You know, I've often wondered if I'd stuck with him another another five years or so, uh, how much more I would have been able to to glean from him. And like I said, we've still I've been fortunate enough in the past few years to get show, do shows with him, um, and even as a you know, designer now in my forties who, uh, I would, you know, feel, I feel very accomplished in my own right. I still get to learn something from Scott, uh, every time I get to do a project with him. So find the people that do that for you and stick as close to those people as you can. Oh, I mean, that was awesome. Let's get to the freaking <laughs> interview. The great and powerful Scott Moore is with us. Daniel, you should introduce our guest today because without this guy, you would not exist. I would not. He's literally my father. No, um, <laughs> no, Scott and I go way back. <laughs> so Scott is a is LD designer, production designer, production manager. Owns a company out of Nashville uh, called Go Live Productions. Uh, if you listen to the um, the podcast with Tony Franson a few weeks ago, uh, Scott is also who Tony's worked with for a long time. So a lot of us guys that came out of Nashville in the, the 90s and 2000s, uh, have been lucky enough to get to work with Scott. And I'm sure into this, we'll get into a little bit more of his history. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, if you saw a 
Christian concert in the 90s and 2000s. There's a good chance Scott was uh, involved in some way. And I feel like I'm almost talking about him like he's retired now. And he's absolutely not. Go live. Is, uh, <laughs> may want to be. but and With 2020, I probably will never retire. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, still still doing a ton of shows. In fact, I guess I think the last project uh, you and I got to do together was uh, Motion Conference in Birmingham for Church of the Highlands. What was that, 2019? Yes. Yeah. There you go. And, and then Lee and I, Lee and I were both with Scott almost a year ago to the day when we were all together on the Chick-fil-A cruise extravaganza for their annual meeting last year. And that was the last event that really I was a part of until COVID hit. So we we uh, started our year off from events together, which was kind of bittersweet and Thinking back, it's like, okay, well, that's that's been a long time. Remember it's when crazy. we did shows? Yeah, and then we all got uh, flu-like symptoms two weeks after we got off the boat. Yep. <laughs> that's sort of normal for cruises, though, isn't it? I think so. Well, that's true. Well, what's interesting is a couple weeks after our cruise, when they published the list of cruise ships that were stranded because they couldn't get in port, I looked through the list, and it was like, oh, there's the boat we were on. Yeah. Oh, there's the other boat that was on that cruise. And so those, uh, man. Well, and not I'm, to jump down too far down a rabbit hole, but part of that cruise, and just so people that don't know, we actually had two of the largest cruise ships on the planet uh, cruising together, and we were bouncing satellite signals between the two so that every piece of content that happened on one ship happened on the other, um, which was quite a feat to begin with. But as part of that, I got this maritime tracker app on my phone, so I could actually see where our ship was, where your ship was at any given time. And I still have that app. And now when you go to it, it's just horribly depressing because there's this cluster of blue triangles, which are all cruise ships that are just rafted together out in the middle of the Caribbean right now and have been still for months. Yeah. They just, they can't oh, really wow. do anything. Yeah. Because we learned a lot about the cruise culture. Like it's a whole subculture and all of the crew and the staff that's like their city, their country. So like when they go port in Fort Lauderdale, depending on where you're from and, you know, um, immigration and all that, some, some people don't ever get off the ship for a year at a time. That's right. So a lot of those uh, guys and gals out there working right now out in the middle of the ocean, they don't really have anywhere to go. That's right. And a lot of places, so, especially earlier on in the pandemic, places ports weren't taking those ships, so they couldn't go anywhere. Anyway, yeah. crazy. It wow. is crazy. Well, that's a long story to just connect a few dots. In fact, going back to what Daniel said about the Petra days, um, little known fact, Petra was my first concert ever, probably before your time, but it was uh, 1983, uh, not of this world. So shout out to um, all the Petra guys who might be listening. But um, I can yeah. actually say I got- that I was a, pe- a member of Petra for one day. Huh. That's excellent. <laughs> yeah, Louis Weaver got stuck in a tornado in Chicago in an airport and couldn't make the show. So I played drums for him for one night. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, one of you, I bet, had something to do with my first concert. And it's uh, this week we remembered this guy because he just passed away. Carmen. Yeah. The Righteous Invasion of Truth Riot Tour was my first concert ever. Wow. Amazing. 
Anybody a part of that? Scott, did you do Carmen? I didn't do anything with Carmen. Um, I obviously knew a lot of people that did because, I mean, especially in those days, everybody knew everybody. And I guess that's yeah. still relatively true because the Christian music industry is pretty small. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's actually a fun a- anecdote. Uh, you st- actually started your career as a drummer, didn't you? Um, yes. I was a professional musician that owned a lighting company. There you go. I started playing drums when I was in fifth grade. I started building lighting rigs when I was in sixth grade. So that was always one of my favorite things about Scott's programming is, you know, he approached it from a, from a drumming standpoint. So like, you know, it had all the hits and everything perfect. But uh, the tough part about that, when I started working with him, uh, I'm a white boy from Alabama with no rhythm who's never played an instrument in my life. So I still, yes, I still remember setting in a warehouse trying to run uh, cues for Jackie Velasquez, which... Holy cow, was there, was there a percussion section uh, with a ton of hits that uh, Scott had kind of mapped out and programmed. And I, I think he w- thought I was coming to the table with at least some uh, semblance of beat. So I remember uh, sitting in a warehouse running a, a hog two with Scott behind me going, <laughs> making sure I knew, I knew when to hit it. And uh, by the end of the tour, I had rhythm, but it, it took a bit. So, Well, you know, that was long before there was Simpty. Well, there's more drums on songs now, so it's, it's, it's getting a little much. <laughs> it's not just like a kick and snare hits. Now it's like there's a drum kit and there's programmed synths and percussion. So, sure, you know, That's thanks, it. chain smokers. But a thousand cues a song is like not out of the ordinary anymore. No, that's true. I'm pretty sure we had one that was about a thousand cues, and I wish I could remember the name of it. But it was it the was one that had the instrumental break, right? It was. It was. So it was before Simpty, so we didn't have that. But the hog had a feature called learn timing, and as long as you hit the first cue right, everything else could follow it. But if you were off on that first cue, everything else was equal off. There was literally, like, if I remember right, even you had trouble running the cues perfectly the first time through. You were able to break it up in about three sections and and get uh, a solid run uh, to where for a, a song with probably I don't know, it was literally maybe four or five hundred cues in it. Uh, I had about four cues to hit, but as long as I hit those four cues right. Everything else would run. Yeah. So in um, those days, we could do. They were still using the click tracks, so everything was still, you know, was still timed out and was going to be accurate every day. So learn timing was basically just following button presses, and it would insert uh, delay time between each cue based on when those button presses were. So what we would do on something like that is, I'd actually write a chart out that was the piece of music that they were playing, and then record all the cues to that piece of music or to that chart, and then go back with a click track, get it started, mm-hmm. turn on learn timing, run all the cues, and then all he had to do was hit the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still remember uh, sitting there and watching you sketch those out either in Excel or uh, just on a piece of paper by the console. And although this is a piece of advice that I give that I've never taken myself, uh, watching that uh, has <laughs> yeah has made me tell a lot of the, the younger LDs that come to us for info, uh, if you are interested in music at all, having some ability to to read and write music, you know, although it's not something I've never been able to do, I've seen it in multiple occasions where it's a, a huge advantage to actually being able to parse a song apart logically, forget the lyrics, forget the, you know, verse chorus, but from a, a, a true, you know, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, but just a true beat standpoint and then map your cues out according to that, you know, you usually end up uh, with a lot cleaner, you know, looking show versus, oh, well, when they say the word, you know, Jesus, then we're going to hit the cue. <laughs> That's so. true. And again, I mean, that goes back to, to you know, if you're, if you're locking a song to uh, a time code with Simpty, 
then, you know, maybe you can pick up every little thing that happens. Or if you have to have that specific skill, you can pick up the things that happen. Um, but there's a lot of guys that when they start off, they're thinking really in, in terms of lyrics. There's nothing wrong with that, especially in Christian music, because the lyric is a very important thing. I think what's happened um, as the technology has increased and as people's understanding of technology has increased. I mean, keep in mind, when I started doing this, lighting consoles were still zero to 10 volts analog. You patched everything. You patched, you you hard patch control channels, you hard patch dimmers, and everything was on a fader or a bump button. Um, so, you know, shows were just not as complicated when we started doing this. But now most people, especially coming up in a church, for instance, are just coming up with technology. Everything's either an LED or it's a moving light or whatever. So now we have all this technology and we have people that understand how to use technology. But I think the important thing is to understand how to use the technology to create art mm-hmm. as opposed to using technology to do all the whiz-bang things that technology can do. And I, I think I see a lot of disconnect um, in shows that I've watched over the last several years where people, I think I made the comment to you last year, or I guess in 2019, that it seems like now we know how to program everything, but we don't necessarily know how to light anything. Right. Which is obviously an overstatement and, and is harsh, but um, that actually happened when I was watching an LD and I won't mention any names, um, running a show that was on Simpty, And there weren't any follow spots for this particular event. The only thing there was were some wash lights in the rig. And there was another set of wash lights that if your artist walked down the thrust, you needed to manually turn those up. And I watched as his artist walked off the thrust into the dark. And he's just staring at his console running Simpty for the better part of the song until finally one of the two of us went up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, Asked him to push up the fader. It's like, well, yeah. what's happening? All you have to yeah. do is watch. Yeah. So I, I think it's just, it's really important to be able to speak to the music. And one of the things that you and I talked about a lot back in the day was I like to envision lighting as being, from an audio perspective, like an expander to what's actually happening. So mm-hmm. if this is happening musically, I want this to happen from a lighting standpoint. And when this happens, you get to a breakdown of some sort, then I want the light, the floor to drop out of the lighting. So whatever's happening, we're trying to expand upon that, not necessarily overwrite it, not necessarily trying to take away from what a performer's doing, but if a moment's big, we want to make it really big. And if a moment's really intimate, we generally want to go extremely intimate. So that from an artist, when I'm thinking about that kid that's sitting up in the 300 level, I want that person to be brought into the event as much as the person that's sitting right next to front of house. Now, that was something you, you really drove home consistently with me. And we've talked about that a lot in other MXU things and, and podcasts and videos. And kind of the way we say it is, uh, you know, the same way that, you know, the audio is there to amplify what we're hearing. The lighting is there to ampl- amplify what we're feeling from the music. And uh, a lot of times when people you know, get off the rails from a lighting standpoint or they're accused of being a distraction It's because it's no longer, it may look neat to them, but it's no longer directly correlated with what we're hearing and seeing on stage. And in the church world, you know, that can be frustrating because a lot of times guys are, they're watching what Hillsong's doing. They're watching what Passion's doing, what Transformation's doing, whatever, you know, the, the big exciting event of the week is. They see that and they want to replicate that in their space. The problem is their band may not sound like that. Um, in fact, you know, one of the, groups that you uh, set me up to work with, I'll, I'll leave them nameless, um, 
But uh, I'll just say their, their bass player was very involved in the production. That'll probably let you know who it was. And one of the constant struggles was uh, they would come to me and go, well, we, we saw this latest U2 concert. We want it to look like U2. And in my, inside I'm going, but you don't sound like U2. So what <laughs> works visually for them doesn't work visually for you. So. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's just, it's really important to be able to focus on the music and specifically in the Christian market to focus on that message. But that applies to anything. I mean, what is that songwriter trying to get across to an audience? What's that performer trying to get across to an audience? And every performer is going to have different opinions on that. I mean, the, you know, the, the vibe these days is, well, we don't want to see the performers. I don't, yeah, with very few exceptions, I do not understand that. Um, yeah. I, I, there are moments where that's fine, and there are some artists where maybe that really does apply to. But for the most part, it's like, eh, it's kind of lighting 101. You, you still have to light the talent. You can light them in an artistic fashion, maybe just from the one That's side it. or anything like that, but we still kind of need to see them. Um, but you have to, with all this technology and all the things that the fixtures can do, as, as you've often heard me say, just because it can doesn't mean it should. And you've mm-hmm. got to be able to edit yourself. You may have spent 25 minutes programming this wicked cue, which back in the day before we had effects engines might have been three or four hours to program this one particular cue. Um, Mm -hmm. but at some point you have to be able to step back and say, but does it really help what's happening on stage? Or have I just created something that's distracting and you got to be willing to, to just get rid of that. I always think about Cirque du Soleil when you think about how amazing those shows are and their stance is always, it doesn't matter how great something is, everything can be cut. Yep. It doesn't matter how much money we've spent on it, how much time we spent on it. If it doesn't fit the final needs of the show we'll cut it. Yeah. I like what you're saying about, you know, thinking about the lyric, but programming, you know, you think about drums and like, where, where do you start with? But especially with worship music, it's like a combination of the lyric and the vibe of the song. Those should set the table for what we're doing to invite people in and paint the, you know, the environment and paint the picture of what that is. So it like lighting guys should be like, what do the lyrics of this song say? And then, you know, and then how fast is the song? What's the vibe of it? Like there's a, what key the song is can drastically, you know, change um, how mm-hmm. a song feels and then not just go, I can't wait to use this, um, this effect that I saw on a song and then just wait for a song to use and just throw that in there. So I, I do like that. I haven't thought about that much before. I've always just thought, well, what's the song feel like? But, you know, the lyrics and w- what you're actually trying to say really matters. And then I think you can you can go up a level and go, okay, if it's eight songs, what's the theme throughout the eight songs? And how does that help us, you right. know, through not just programming one song, but like, where are we going? Is it mm-hmm. is it song six when we really want the audience to feel like um, now they know why they're here? And, you know, and then... I, I, these ideas are just coming to me as I'm, as I'm talking, but then really partnering with the artists, the worship leaders, and then asking them before, what's, what do you want the people in the room to experience at the beginning of the night? And then what is it at the end of the night? Like, what's, what's your goal? Like, if you don't know any of that, then how can you even decide what color a song should be, let alone what to do with all the effects? That applies to audio, video, and lighting. Like, if we can 
collaborate to create this sort of through line and this arc throughout the whole show or the whole worship set, that's going to be the best way to kind of take people on a journey, which is what we're really tasked to do. Absolutely. And I think when you have been gifted with the time and the communication to be able to develop that, then that's exactly the goal is that, you know, we joke about, you know, the guy that just throws every effect that he has in his rig out of the first song. And then, well, where do you have left to go? Yeah. You know, you want to save things you want and you want to kind of map that out. Um, Sometimes it's just not possible because there's not enough communication. And, you know, and so maybe that's an opportunity for people to start developing that communication. Sometimes there's just not time. It's just like, hey, we got to do these six songs and it's tomorrow. Okay, well, I'm just going to start banging them out. But at at some point, experience should kick in and, and you still need to be thinking through, okay, so this is song one, this is song two, song three, song four, song five, song six. But where did I go? from the start to the end, as opposed to just six individual elements. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like one of the things that, that Daniel will tell you, I mean, sometimes you work with an artist that just says, I want the, I want the stage to go black after every song, which frankly drives me nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you work with an artist that says, I don't ever want it to be dark on stage. And sometimes that's just because hey, I'm a musician and I want to set this guitar down and pick this one up, or I want to check my tuning, or I don't want to trip over something. I understand all that. My goal has always been blackouts should have a reason. You know, there might be that song that requires a blackout at the end, or maybe there's a blackout in the middle of a song or something, but it shouldn't just be because the song's over and we go to black. So Mm -hmm. I've always tried in concert tours, for instance, to link things together. When song one ends and you have that last cue, there's something about that that stays there that leads you into song two. And there's something about the end of song two that leads you into song three and all those kinds of things. Also, when you're doing video, blackout is not cool. No. <laughs> we do award shows, and I have LDs all the time saying, and then this is where we go to black. Or I'll have artists tell me, and then we do a blackout here. And I, you know, and I usually time is of the essence, and I try to be as diplomatic as possible. It's like, you know what blackout looks like on a TV? Turning it off. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the show's over. Uh, so we have to figure out some way to do your blackout that's not a blackout. Maybe we just left you in this really sharp backlight and we make sure that the video director knows that he's got his camera placed here and that becomes that really cool moment. Or the camera's behind you and we're shooting out to the audience or you know any of those kind of things. But that's all the kind of stuff that you have to think about. And, and for lighting directors, you absolutely have to think in terms of, am I lighting for an audience or am I lighting for a camera? And sometimes you're lighting for both. And that's a that's a huge trade-off. But you need to know what it is that you're lighting for and and then approach that appropriately. Because it's never, you know, there's no good video that happens unless you have good lighting. Yep. There's that that doesn't exist. So if you want good video, you have to have appropriate lighting. Absolutely. That's Something good. you were saying there made me realize there's a there's a topic I think kind of in there that I've, I've talked about on some of our podcasts before, but I don't think you and I have ever discussed this. You know, in a in the this world where everything is always so late, everything's always so last minute. Um, you know, it it honestly seems even more so in the the church world than in the the concert world. From from my standpoint, I'm sure other people could see it the other way around. But um, something that that I've developed that you and I never really did together was. Just about every show we approach now has some sort of punt page to go along with it, where I might have a foundation 
to run from, but then I have the ability to, uh, you know, based on what I'm actually hearing in the moment, you know, have the ability to add or take away appropriately. Is that something you've ever done much with or because a lot of the stuff you and I did together was completely queued out? Yeah. You know, um, after our time together, what I started noticing is it was not unusual that you might have eight days to maybe even two weeks of just programming lighting. And that's when lighting was not as complicated as it is now. And then you would go into production rehearsals with the band. Um, now, I mean, it's not unusual that production rehearsals are three or four days and that's it. If you're lucky. Yeah. Now you've got a, a guy that's programming lighting and programming video and all sorts of other things. So yes, punt pages became kind of a big part of that, especially if you're working with an artist that might just decide that they're not necessarily following a set list. They could pull a song out of, out of their archives at any given moment and having a punt page is important for that. And then understanding how to lay out your punt page and then how to use it and how to get in and out of it and not be stuck with things that you didn't want. So yeah, that, that became, that became kind of a priority shortly after you and I were working together. That kind of brings up a good point. You know, um, a lot of times I think when people discuss programming, they're thinking about, you know, what buttons you push on the console to make things happen. When in reality, it, it's, it's how you lay out the console to allow you to navigate it well. Um, that's one of the things I know I learned from you. And I, I believe Tony probably learned really well from you too, of, you know, that, that type of approach can span console platforms. And, you know, a lot of times guys will come to me and go, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an 18 year old lighting designer. Should I, you know, pay my way out to LA to be trained on MA by act lighting? Well, I mean, that's not a bad idea, but I don't think you're going to get the end results you want from that because a lot of programming, like I said, is not what buttons you're pushing. It's the way, you know, it's the approach to it. So there's things that, uh, I learned working with you on a hog two, which, um, what are we on now? Hog four? Is that what we're up to? I can't, I don't, can't keep up. So um, we're talking late nineties at this point, you know, I still use those same approaches on an MA3 22 years later. Um, yeah. I mean, it's important that you understand how your console's laid out and it really doesn't matter, I guess, how you lay it out so long as you can get to what you need, or even more importantly, if you're working as a programmer with a designer, designer doesn't want to sit there and say, and now make that aqua. And they're like, (laughs) 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 dial knobs. No, no, no. Just like bang, it should just be done. So, and that's, that's what sets the really good programmers and the the world-class programmers apart from the guys that need to work on that because they will always have a really well set up console. That was another thing you you kind of drove home with me that has has paid off d- big dividends over the years, um, sort of for a different reason. You know, I uh, console setup was such a big part of all the projects we did, and it was usually from from that standpoint you just laid out of you being the designer will be back behind me, kind of telling what you wanted, and I need to be able to navigate the console efficiently and quickly to get that done to make the most use of our time. Uh, one of the things I found, uh, you know, even after you and I started working together, and I stopped working together, and uh, I started doing a lot more of my own stuff. In a, if you're a one man band, so a lot of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast are church LDs, um, you know, maybe younger guys in their room. Just having that very clean, easily uh, navigatable, did I say that correctly, navigatable, uh, navigatable uh, console layout. Um, when I'm the only there by myself, being able to get to what I want to quickly and efficiently without having to think, 
okay, where do I find this on the console? What buttons do I need to push to get here? Helps me keep my brain more focused on the creative side. Uh, you know, more in the, what would that be? Left brain um, approach to it. So, uh, you know, I'm not constantly having to switch back and forth because I've spent, you know, a day ahead of time doing nothing but making the console easy to navigate. So. Well, to that point, and, and you hit on that, is that you know, programming, and the same thing goes for audio guy, audio engineers, the same thing goes for uh, video tech directors and, and video directors that are running their own switchers. The interface between you and the gear is a piece of science. And so you have to be able to manipul- manipulate that piece of science, basically. Um, it's, it's a computer program that has dedicated buttons and learning to do all that and doing it efficiently is important because the goal is, is to just get the science out of it. The goal is, and it's just like being a musician. At some point, if I'm going to be a drummer, I'm going to spend forever working on my hands and feet. But all I'm doing is developing a vocabulary because what I really want to do is I want to get what's in my head out of my hands and feet into the instrument. And I do that by having a bigger vocabulary, just like being able to have a conversation with someone. If you only know 10 words, that's going to be really complicated. But if you get your vocabulary up, then you can move on to the art. So getting your console set up and getting it to where it's just second nature. You're not sitting there looking for the buttons. You're not paging through things, wondering where, what is that thing? Because all that does is that takes you out of the moment. Mm -hmm. So you want to stay in the moment by getting through your console as quickly as you can. And so that way you can get onto the art of it. I mean, nothing like a big gripe that I have with audio engineers is the guys that stare at their console. Because the reality is, if you can look at the stage and not stare at your console, you're going to see that acoustic guitar player reaching for that quarter inch cable and about to pull it out. And then you, because you've got your console set up the way it needs to be set up and you know it really well, without hardly looking at it, just hit that mute button. But when Mm -hmm. you're staring at the console, everybody hears, bam. That's good. Well, I love that connection to musicianship and what we do technically because, you know, the best guitar players, the best drummers, you know, working with great musicians, the ones that we respect the most are the ones who have zero impediment between what's in their head and what comes out of their fingers. And I think to have that approach to get that vocabulary, to get that comfortability with us as technicians to be the same way is the best way to have this sort of more fluid, more reactive, instinctual sort of approach. And it's going to have a better result, much more artistic result because of that lack of sort of that gap. I love the way you say get through the science to get to the art. That's that's a great, a great way to say it. Yeah, well, we all live in a left brain, right brain world. We have to access that analytical part that gets us through all these computers, but we have to just get past that. Yeah. And, that, and that's really important. And then beyond that is that the communication, you know, if you're actually, again, video directors, graphics guys, audio engineers, lighting directors, we got to be able to communicate. We got to be able to communicate with each other. We got to be able to communicate with the producer. We got to be able to communicate with a director if there is one. You've got to be able, as a lighting uh, programmer, you've got to be able to communicate with a lighting designer. If you're a lighting designer, you've got to be able to communicate with the lighting programmer. Uh, you've got to be able to communicate with your talent and understand that a lot of those people don't speak your language. You know, lighting won't be their first language, and it may not be one they speak really at all. 
And so they may say something to you and you have got to figure out, well, what's the intent behind that? And sometimes that say it may require clarification. It might require the simple, hey, can you ask me that a different way? Um, but at some point you have to get to the crux of what they're really looking for. You know, they made, you know, it's just like the audio engineer where, where if you're a monitor engineer and someone keeps saying, well, turn this up, we'll turn this up, we'll turn this up. Well, a good monitor engineer is going to know that what we really need to do is turn these things down because you can't mm-hmm. just keep turning things up because eventually the zeros and ones all turn into ones and it's done. So, <laughs> you know, you've got to be able to have those communication skills and, you know, don't wear your heart on your sleeve and don't sit there and get your feelings hurt just because someone didn't know how to communicate to you that you weren't going the direction that they wanted you to go. That's you good. just need good. to figure out how to go that direction or find some point in the middle. Yeah. That talking about communication, that, that kind of segues into something else. I, I was thinking it'd be good to get into today. And I don't really have an exact question to start out with, but I know one of the things that has had a huge impact on me uh, was your level of communication as a production manager. When it comes to all of the information about an event, the way it's organized, um, you know, from plot, you know, lighting plots and build schedules to, you know, input lists and, you know, way back in the day before things like master tour existed, tour books and all the other things to go on with that. Um, I mean, you know, again, like I said, I don't, I don't know that I have a, an exact question, but it's, that's something I see missing a lot from some of the events nowadays. So what, I don't know if you can just maybe dive into it, but when, it, when an event pops up, what is your approach, you know, that you're, you're production ma- managing, what is your approach to communicating with the vendors, the talent, the the crew, as far as like, you know, why I, I've seen the extremes you go to of getting all those little details documented out. Why is that important? <laughs> uh, well, there's, I mean, you know, there's all the obvious professional reasons. Part of it is because I'm short. I'm 5'8". And I know that sounds like, well, what does that have to do with anything? When I walk into a room, I'm not an imposing force. I mean, I know a lot of production managers and, and guys that do this kind of thing that are just big, boisterous people. And I am, I'm not boisterous and I'm not physically large. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I want to make sure before I walk into a room that I've sorted out all the little things that need to be sorted out. Now, that doesn't mean when I get there that I've sorted them all out. There's going to still be those things that, oh, damn, I didn't think about that. But the reality is the way that particular issue makes me feel I want to avoid that as much as possible because it just, it doesn't matter how good a show went. If it was the one thing that I forgot about, you know, oh, he told me he was a vegetarian, dadgummit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got 95 people on this show and I had the one guy who was a vegetarian and, you know, my assistant didn't get that information. And, and yes, we sent someone out to go get vegetarian meals for him and it was all taken care of, but I'm going to walk away just feeling like a moron. So, I don't like that feeling, so my solution has always been to just put everything together in as much detail as I can. And just like setting up a console, it has everything to do with having templates set up. And these days, it used to be FileMaker Pro and then all the things we did with Vectorworks. These days, it's now Google Docs um, because a Google Sheet um, is an amazing way to, to transfer information. You can just keep adding tabs. Right? Like... <laughs> One of my least favorite things to do is if I'm working on a project with someone else is when I get another Excel file. It's like, oh, for the love of crying out loud. (laughs) You could put another tab on on the one file that we're already sharing 
And then I don't have to keep track of all these different files that you keep sending me. Um, so when I'm doing that, pretty much everything spits out of, of two Google Docs. One is all about financial and one is all about everything else. So in that one document, there's schedules. There's um, If it's a complicated project um, and I'm trying to sort out how many people I need for stagehands, for instance, I actually have a sheet on there that allows me to break it down by department and by 15 minute increments throughout the day. So I think, you know, for instance, first thing out of the box is we're unloading trucks and it's gonna take me 45 minutes to get my first two trucks offloaded. You know, so I'm figuring out, well, how many people do we need to have for that? And then at what point does audio need people? And by that time you spit all that stuff out, it actually tells you how many stagehands you need and how long you're gonna need them. And interestingly enough, that actually works out to be pretty accurate unless somebody makes a serious mistake. Now, here's the thing. So we talk about details. Um, when I'm doing some of these more complicated shows, like some of these award shows that we do, where time is very limited, which I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, you know, we do the Caleb Fan Awards every year, or we try to when there's not COVID. Um, <laughs> that the the challenge with that event, besides the fact that you've probably got 15 live acts playing live in a three hour uh, three hour window on one stage and all of the associated set changes that go with that. Um, the biggest challenge with that particular show is the fact that it takes place at the Grand Old Opry. And the Grand Old Opry has a, has an event there called the Grand Old Opry that occurs every Tuesday night, Friday night, Saturday night. So we can't impede any of that. So we go in on Tuesday morning and we pre-rig for between 8 a.m. and 2 p.m. By 2 p.m. we just have to be gone. And to do that is very complicated. And I'll give you an example of how complicated that is. So we'll have uh, a, a rigging truss that has to go up to a trim of 50 feet. And, you know, if a one-ton motor or a two-ton motor travels at 16 feet per minute, that really shouldn't take very long to do that. But I've timed it, and it's not unusual for one of those trusses to take about 45 minutes to get to trim. Because while we have worked out all the details... Okay, this batten has to come in and get below the truss. This batten with the curtain on it has to come down and the bottom of the curtain has to be below the truss. Now we start raising everything up. I also need these two battens to be pulled downstage to make that happen. Then we go up and then a cable gets fouled. So it has to all come back down. And then we adjust the cable just a little bit because it was just an inch off. And we take it all back up. And, you know, 45 minutes later, we get the thing to trim. Well, as, as one example... On that particular show, I do all the cable pass for that. They're actually drawn out in 3D, and it's not just this is how it ends up. It's this is how it starts. This is step two. This is step three. This is step four. This is step five. This is how long all these cables are. This is how your cables run, blah, blah, blah. This is where the brakes have to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So one year I had a um, member of the, I hate to say this, video crew that ran one cable to the wrong end of the cable raceway and then back to a truss and nobody caught it until we started going up and we had to stop. We had to bring it all down and it took about an hour and a half to physically get to that cable and get it rerouted. Now keep in mind, mm -hmm. we only have a six hour window. And when I mean a six hour window, by the end of that six hour window, we have to look like we were never there. It's not just like, Ooh, it's up. Great. We're done. It's like all the cables have to have disappeared everything. So, all it takes is that one guy to make that one mistake and you're in trouble. So 
when we're doing shows that are that complex and on that kind of a tight time frame, I'm all about every piece of detail information I can give you, I'm going to give you. It's all there. And then I'm going to go over it with you and make sure that you understood it. Uh, because we just can't afford to make those mistakes. They're too expensive and it's, they're too stressful. So that's why I do that. Yeah. And for the production managers and tech directors that are listening that may be like, you know, I'm not 5'8 and 5'9 like Daniel and Scott. You know, I'm 6'3 I'm and, and 250 solid muscle. Maybe I don't need to worry about all this. I'll tell you the, the other side of this stuff that Scott's talking about. You know, for me, anytime I was one of those projects and I saw the degree of planning that had already gone into place, you know, the, the thought that had already been put into my job before I'm even there, uh, that put me on notice. I was like, oh, shoot, if the guy employing me has already thought about it this much, how much more do I need to focus on my job? Do I need to pay attention to these details? And unfortunately, you know, you can tell from that story, you know, that's not always the case. Not everyone sees it that way. I can say the vast majority of us, when you when you get to a, a project and you see all the work that's already done like that, um, you know, I, I feel, you know, I feel like there's even there's going to be even more repercussions if I fail if I don't do my planning properly, you know. So that can just seeing that level of thought that has gone into it, you know, with the right team can elevate the whole team. Yeah, and I think there are times, especially in in church world, for example, when somebody just gets a request on planning center to do a job or fill a role, it's easy to miss that step because it looks like everything's just automated and it just shows up shows up in my inbox and I just click accept and I just show up to push buttons. And if we can have a better understanding of, gosh, somebody went to the effort and time and trouble to create a lot of paperwork to make sure that all this happens smoothly and efficiently, you know, I, I need to be invested in that part as well from the, from the standpoint of exactly what you're saying, Daniel, it's like, man, if they cared enough about this event to do all that, then this is a bigger deal than just me clicking yes to a request. I've got to dig in a little bit, make sure my skill is ready, make sure that if there are those improv punt moments in the show that I've got my toolbox ready to be able to accommodate whatever this event artist production manager whoever needs to be able to make this thing go the way they've designed it to go and the to to satisfy the vision that everybody has for this thing because gosh this is a big deal and I remember I mean whether it's passion or big events like the Chick-fil-A thing or other conferences you know getting an inside feel for the hundreds of emails and the hundreds of pages of paperwork and all of the things that go into making those events happen made me a more conscientious participant mm -hmm. because of that very thing. So um, that I, we can't overstress the importance of that. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's a, at all levels too. I mean, you may be listening to this as a volunteer who stagehand at your church whose big responsibility in the weekend is rolling the TV out on stage for the pastor. Um, and that may seem like a little simple piece, but is the cable, you know, is the SDI feed for the TV plugged in properly? Is the TV turned on before it goes out there? Have you secured the power cable in some way? Because, you know, per Scott's story, one little detail massively screwed up a very well thought out operation. Um, and that's, you know, the video guy may have approached that gone, going, I'm just the video guy. All these, these big details don't really matter. I don't have to ingest all this. Well, bull crap. You did. Yeah. Uh, well, and at that point, um, I have a couple of things to say about that. One, um, certain disciplines, mistakes become a lot larger than others. 
you know, if I'm a lighting guy and I kind of missed a lighting cue, I might have been the only person that knew it. When you're the a video director and you're also the tech director and you kind of fat finger a camera punch during a worship song, you might have been the only person that noticed that. When you're the audio engineer and you miss the fact that the acoustic guitar player was unplugging his acoustic guitar, that may have been the only mistake that you made the entire time, but everybody, including <laughs> Wilma in the front row, is going to know. And if you're that person that's rolling out that TV and it didn't turn on because you didn't bother to check it first, that's a huge mistake. But everything matters. And at that point, especially in the Christian industry, um, you know, we're all called to excellence. And it's so easy. And I'm guilty of this as well, I mean, especially when you're in like a volunteer situation. And it's so easy to just like, yeah, I've got this and whatever. But, you know, this is a moment that you've been called to do and we're called to excellence. And so we should we should be in that moment and giving that everything we've got. That's good. Yeah, I think yeah. that's great. Scott, yeah. we really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of that insight. And I just want you to know, if it wasn't for you, a few weeks ago, Daniel would not have gone to Home Depot to execute what has been the most widely talked about <laughs> church production phenomenon of the last 20 years. What did I miss? <laughs> maybe, maybe last 20 days. No, definitely 20 years. It, it really is. I think it's 20 years. Um, a church in Tulsa wanted to completely flood their stage and have a water stage. And instead of calling Tate or some, you know, custom fabrication company to spend six or seven figures, Daniel went to Home Depot and spent less than a thousand bucks and talk about the impact that that had. But he's talked about you before and, you know, your creativity when budgets may not be there of, going to Home Depot and using chain link fence or screen porch materials. And it just looks fabulous, fantastic. And people talk about that stuff for years. So I think I'm putting words in Daniel's mouth, but it's okay. But um, your leadership and, and insight and speaking into his life, I think has caused some of that. So we like to think that we were kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of the church design stuff that you see now, especially in smaller churches where people are like, I could do that with PVC pipe. I could do that. Cause I mean, we were touring with all that kind of stuff. Right. I remember Dave Milley with TLS, which is which he has now sold, a lighting company in Alabama who provided lights for a, a ton of my projects back in the day, would talk about us going into all these churches and all of a sudden he was getting calls for sales to all these churches. And, and, and in those days, if you were touring churches, it was still the traditional church and choir lofts. And yep. that, that's when men were men. <laughs> yes, there were super towers and concrete blocks. And all. That's right. Right. How are we? Get, how are we going to get these genie lifts on the fifth row of the choir loft with only two guys to hoist them up there? <laughs> Literally, the way we made that retaining pond on the stage, and it was a you know it was a forty foot wide by forty foot uh, deep by you know four inches of water retaining pond, and so my guys had to load up a trailer load of cinder blocks to take uh, in there to help make the retaining pond, and I think one of them made the joke of you know. Man, I bet you've never seen this many cinder blocks in one place. And I was like, I said, you know, actually, I toured with that many cinder blocks because we had to haul the cinder blocks into the choir lofts to use to put the genie lifts on, so they wouldn't, uh, you know, we could level out an area big enough to do a genie lift. So, yep, been there, done that. Yeah, boy, that's so good. That's no, that's good though, Lee. That's a that's a topic we drive home here a lot. Like we all like the nice toys. I'm not gonna lie and say it's not nice to have a a rig full of moving lights and an MA3 out there to mess with. 
but what always makes us best at using those nice tools is having learned how to do it without them. Uh, learn, learning how to do it with gel before we had color mixing lights, you know, doing it, learning how to do it with genie lifts before we had chain motors, learning how to do it on having to run moving lights on one console and conventionals on another before we had one console that can handle all of it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think it goes back to the touring thing of, you know, some of the best production managers are those who had to do it before an internet connection mm-hmm. and everything was pen and paper and tour books and phone books and hardline phones with yellow pages. I mean, that's how hotels got booked and that's how meals got ordered and that's how crew got scheduled. And so realizing that, you know, the, the end result is the same, no matter what the tool. And so using better, more modern tools is, is just a different sort of avenue toward the same result, but it's the intentionality and the mindset and the attention to detail that really carries you through no matter what the technology is that you have. Absolutely. Hey, speaking of uh, technology and tools, something I haven't heard an update from you on in a long time is kind of the way the direction edge lights heading in. And for everybody listening that may not be familiar with it, uh, Scott came out with this cool idea, uh, what, three or four years ago now, probably, of, you know, when LED tape started getting used a lot for lighting stages and lighting scenic pieces, there wasn't really an efficient way of doing that and definitely not one that worked with touring in any way. Some of us in the church world that could bend, uh, build it and then it stay in, in that place forever had, had developed ways, but there was no way to really travel it. So Scott came up with a, a ingenious system of using kind of a neon flex type material to uh, and making it modular where it could all connect together, outline stage risers, outline, outline stages. And I know you've been working on uh, some new ideas with that this year. Are you guys starting, do you find with, with kind of COVID and what it's doing, are you guys starting to do more custom projects? You got anything cool coming out worth mentioning? Yeah. I mean, obviously with, with COVID, I mean, it just shut everything down. I mean, I looked at mm-hmm. an 87% drop in business in the second quarter of 2020 uh, and probably overall was about uh, 65, 70% over 2020. But regardless, um, we have done some, uh, you know, prior to that, we had finally come out and gone away from our prototype fixtures, and we actually have production model fixtures uh, for our floor mount and our truss mount stuff, uh, which we're very excited about. And they're, they're extremely robust. Our floor mount stuff, when you mount it on a stage, you can step right on it. And I don't know anybody else that oh, makes nice. a fixture you can stand on and, <laughs> and not mm-hmm. break it. But wow. if, if, if it's on the edge of your stage, you can just step right up on it. It's no big deal. Um, we have... Um, we have developed the technology for doing pixel mapped versions of that, but that's all been put on hold. Uh, but it involved having custom LED product built in China to our specifications. And we were about to invest in a whole bunch of that in February. And then I saw what was happening in Europe. And I said, maybe I'll just wait a little bit. And actually, that would have been Sorry. devastating <laughs> had I gone ahead and done that. Uh, but in the interim, um, with our downtime, we have developed, we're pretty excited about it. Um, we have developed uh stage mount and truss mount fixtures that are now flexible. So if you have a curved front edge of your stage, I don't care what your radius is. The only thing I need to know is how long it is. Mm-hmm. And we'll just send you these things. They come out of a case. They slap right on there just like our stage mount stuff does. Um, if it's a round stage, it doesn't matter just as long as I know what the uh, circumference is I, so I know what pieces to send you. We don't have to custom fabricate anything. It just wraps right around it. And that's it. Uh, and we have the same thing for trusses. Uh, Scott, I think we just used those at Bayside at Christmas. Uh, you, d- you used uh, the straight fixtures. 
Okay. Yes, you use the straight picture. And somebody needs to send me pictures of those. Oh, well, I can do that. <laughs> That'd be great. Because uh, okay. yeah, we a, don't have a whole lot to brag about over the last year. So, like, anything that we do would be great. I will say we've done a lot of quotes for this stuff, but everything gets cut. You know, oh, we're not doing the event or we don't have the budget or you know, whatever. Yeah. For people who are interested in that or might want to try it, what's the best way to get connected with you and see the product and figure out how they might be able to apply it? You can contact us through edgelightrgb.com or goliveprocom Great. Great. Yeah. Where this is, you know, obviously he designed this for the, the concert touring world, but where I've always thought it'd have a, a great use in, the, in more of the church world is we're starting to have so many stages that need to be portable, whether it's a portable church environment and you really want to make it look more finished and polished or maybe something in your your youth space or if it's a multi-use space where, you know, one day a week you want it to be very, you know, production heavy, uh, maybe, you know, like I said, for youth event or for your, your contemporary service. And then some other time during the week, it needs to be a more traditional standpoint. Something like this that's easy to, to deploy uh, would be pretty awesome for adding that nice little finished touch to it. That's very cool. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great to catch up. And I love the fact that so many of our listeners who may not have known you personally have gotten a just a, a glimpse into your history and your legacy and your influence. Cause I know it's been uh, powerful and super impactful. So yep. um, stay safe out there. And I hope that the weather clears up soon. You guys are under snow. So I don't know. It's crazy. Go take a cruise. Yeah. There you go. Let's go to the Caribbean. There you go. <laughs> well guys, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. You well, that was great. Any of us who've had the chance to work with Scott know that his influence permeates really most everyone we know in the industry. And so uh, to have a legacy like that is truly incredible. But man, there's so many great takeaways from just the practical side of what he said. He, you know, as soon as you meet Scott, you know that he is nothing if not a practical problem solver type person. And man, those skills can go a long way to help anybody who works in production get better. Absolutely. Couldn't set it better myself. So, uh, Daniel, you're going to spend the rest of your day um, getting people unstuck and shuttling people around Oklahoma that don't have proper vehicles? I have already loaned out all of our company trucks to all the people that need it. So, hopefully, <laughs> I, uh, we're done. We're, we're starting to clear out here. I think, uh, you know, the, the main roads are all dry and we got some parking lots and neighborhood streets are still pretty nasty. But uh, I think everyone's taken care of for now. I mean, if you're not under snow right now, I don't think you realize what's going on, but I mean, it's sunshine out here in California, so I can't say anything, but I called Steven Aruda from MikeRentals.com yesterday, and he was in a coin-op laundromat doing family laundry because his, you know, pipes are busted, and he has, doesn't he have one of your heaters warming up his pipes under his house? <laughs> he does. We shut down the uh, the office and warehouse for a couple days just because some of our staff didn't have vehicles capable of getting through the, uh, the 12 inches of snow and ice to, to get in. So we, we got him over our, our propane heater and, and some tanks just to try and keep uh, pipes from freezing anymore. Yeah, that's been all over the place here. And it, it seems like Texas has it even worse. Like they're having full power outages everywhere. And I know uh, Rayburn had to get a generator hooked up to his house just to have you know, power this week. So yeah, it's, if you're in the Midwest right now, you know what we're talking about. It's, it's pretty tough, but luckily Tulsa's starting to dig out. And Steven's got a softball team's worth of kids too. So they do laundry every three hours probably at his house. So that's a big, that coin op laundry is uh, a new budget item for them. They got to 
we got to get thought out soon. Now we know where the coin shortage is coming from. I thought he was playing slot machines and had won the big one. Because, I mean, those quarters, <laughs> I cannot tell you how many quarters this guy went through while we were on the phone. Yeah. It was nuts. That's funny. <laughs> All right, fellas. As always, this has been a blast. So Absolutely. thank you, and I hope you have a great rest of the day. Let's do it again soon. All right. We'll see you on the other side. See ya.